Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Well, before I begin this morning's message, I want to affirm what Pastor Milt said earlier about Baptism Sunday, September 11th. That's two weeks from today. It's hard to believe September is almost here. But it's going to be a great Sunday because there are going to be people who follow Jesus in believers' baptism. And uh, we were so blessed by the baptism today, and there are going to be many others on that day. And I want to speak quickly to two groups of people that this is especially important for. First of all, uh, if you have never stepped across the line of faith, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but, but you've thought about it, you've considered it, and, and you're ready to do that, then Baptism Sunday is the, the perfect Sunday to come out publicly and say, I have made that decision, I've made that commitment, I've turned my back on the old life of sin, I'm turning to Jesus, and I'm ready to follow him with my life. And, and I want to display that commitment publicly through believers' baptism. The second group uh, are people who have made that decision. You've stepped across that line of faith. You know that you're a Christ follower, but you have never followed him in believers' baptism. Maybe it was years ago, but for some reason it just, it just never happened. And it's very important. Your salvation is not dependent upon it. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. But, but baptism is that step of obedience that's primary, and uh, it needs to be believer's baptism. And here's what, what we mean by that. Uh, there are two aspects of believer's baptism. First of all, it comes after you receive Jesus as Savior. Uh, we dedicate children and their families, and that was a beautiful experience today uh, in worship. But uh, that Rachel was not being saved today. Pastor Milt made that clear. Uh, that will happen as she grows up and she understands her need to receive Jesus and she'll take that step of faith. And uh, I pray I'm there to celebrate that day when, when that happens. But we don't criticize other denominations, groups that, that anoint or are baptized or christen children. That's a part of their faith tradition. But as we understand the scripture, True believer's baptism only comes after a person makes a personal decision to become a Christ follower. So that's, that's the first dimension. The second dimension is it's by immersion. Uh, some use sprinkling, and again, we're not criticizing, but it's clear in Scripture that immersion was the mode, and you understand that when you understand that baptism symbolizes two crucial realities. First of all, it symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the baptismal candidate's baptism. And then secondly, on a personal level, it signifies and symbolizes the burial of their past, their old life as an unforgiven sinner. It's buried, it's gone. Daniel said that so well earlier in the service. And then when they come up out of the baptismal waters, it symbolizes they've been raised to a new life, a forgiven sinner, a child of God through faith in Jesus. And so baptism is so important. So 
If you fall into either one of those two groups, you're ready to become a Christ follower or you already have been one but you've never followed in believer's baptism, then participate in Baptism Sunday, September 11th. It's simple, go to our website and right there on the front page you see Baptism Sunday. Click on that and there's a simple form to register and one of our pastors will contact you in response. And, and we're going to make it easy. It's going to be a joyous celebration. Baptism Sunday, two weeks from today. Well, you know, this is tragic, but it can happen. It can happen to any individual through injury or through disease or, or just as the natural byproduct of aging. And what I'm speaking of is a disconnect. A disconnect between the mind and the body, where the body no longer is able fully or perhaps partially to do what the mind commands it to do, and that body no longer functions at full capacity or perhaps even at all. The hands and the, the feet and the arms and the legs no longer respond to the commands of the head. And it becomes a, a struggle for an individual when there's that kind of disconnect. Well, there's a spiritual parallel in the body of Christ, in the life of the Christ follower. There can come a disconnect between what the mind understands, what the ears hear and the mind assimilates, but the body never carries it out. It, it never becomes reality. It's cognitive, but it's not experiential. It doesn't take root and move into the area of our lives. And there's a disconnect between profession and performance, between beliefs and behavior, between the head and the heart and the hands. And when that happens, when there's that spiritual disconnect, the gospel becomes less credible in the minds of cynical unbelievers that witness that disconnect in the lives of Christ followers. This is not a new problem. This is not something that's evidenced itself in our generation and our culture alone. No, it was going on in the first century, and that's why James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter to Jewish Christ followers who had been scattered from their homes and everything familiar and comfortable, and they were struggling to know about the, the Christian life. They didn't have the completed scriptures as we do. And there was a, a disconnect beginning to take root in the lives of those early Christians. And so James wrote to them to try to reconnect the lessons and the living. And that letter that we are involved in studying over these weeks is still needed today. We had an introductory message the first week of the series, and then we've had two of the lessons from the first chapter of James already. Uh, the first one was about trials and troubles, of how we are to, to reframe trials and troubles that come into our lives and see them differently and understand them differently so that we might experience them differently. And here's what James said to those early believers about that. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, 
when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Which sounds really strange, but verse 3 says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And James said in that first lesson that God sends or allows troubles and trials to come into our lives to grow our faith, to increase our endurance, to help us to persevere with faith and trust in him and to see his purpose, his plan, even in the tough times, even in the difficult experiences. That was, that was lesson one. Lesson two was on temptation. This was last week. And James taught us about temptation, how it works, and how to resist it, and how to keep temptation from causing us to fall into sin. And here's what he said about that in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Temptation is real. It comes into the life of every Christ follower. It came into your life this week. It came into my life this week. And I I challenged you to do three things to help safeguard your life and mine against temptation that could pull us into sin. The first one was this. Focus your mind on good and godly things. Focus your mind on good and godly things. Listen, it's really easy in the world in which we live to get our mind focused on evil things. There is so much evil in the world. There is so much hate in the world. There's so much uh, deception in the world. And so much evil is happening. I, I turned on the news briefly this morning and there was a report. It was the same part of town that I went to college in years ago. And, and it talked about a man who set several residences on fire and then dressed all in black and with a rifle shot the residents as they came out of their burning home. That's the kind of world we live in. And what I tried to say is it's so easy to get focused on that. It's so easy to talk about all of the horrible things going and what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that. That's, that's so easy to fall into that. And, and the Apostle Paul said, don't do that. Think about, even in the midst of this evil world, think about our good God. Think about the goodness of God in your life. Think about the faithfulness of God in the midst of unfaithfulness. So focus your mind on good and godly things. Secondly, I challenge you, fill your heart with the truth of God's word. I challenge you to every day spend some time in the word of God. You can do that. I mean, you eat every day, you brush your teeth every day, and I could go on. We sleep every night. We do those things because we need it for our health. And I tried to impress on you last week, we need for our spiritual health to feed on the Word of God every day. Every day. Find a way to arrange it in your schedule so that you spend just a few minutes at least reading and meditating on the Word of God. Fill your heart with the truth of God's Word. And then thirdly and finally, I challenge you, flee from temptation before it hooks you. 
Flee from temptation before it hooks you. Identify the areas of temptation that are your special and strongest weaknesses and build in safeguards in your life, some common sense guardrails around your life in those areas of temptation. And then when the temptation gets past those barriers, be ready to, to fight against the enemy. And I encourage you to do what Jesus did when he was in the wilderness, tempted for 40 days. He quoted God's word. Know the scriptures that deal with your specific weaknesses, your specific temptations, and when they come, when the enemy's trying to sneak in and hook you with them, quote the word of God to him, and he will walk away defeated. There's power in the word of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that was all last week on temptation. And so James shifts gears a little bit for today's lesson. And he talks about the disconnect between what we learn and how we live. And this was true even, I mean, we think this is the only generation that this is really hard. There was a pastor in the first half of the 20th century named A.W. Tozer. And he talked about how it was a problem in the days he was pastoring, in the 40s and the 50s. And here's what he said. So wide is the gulf that separates theory from practice in the church that an inquiring stranger who chances upon both would scarcely dream that there was any relation between them. An intelligent observer of our human scene who heard the Sunday morning sermon and observed the Sunday afternoon conduct of this, who had heard it, would conclude that he has been examining two distinct and contrary religions. And so James addresses this. Having framed for us what real life looks like in the lessons on trials and temptations, he then frames for us what real faith looks like, beginning with verse 19. So that's where we're going to pick up our main text right now. By the way, if, if you're not in the habit of uh, bringing your Bible to church, uh, I encourage you uh, to get back in the habit. And uh, some have said, well, you know, it's so dark, I can't read my Bible. Someone showed me they had a pen that had a light on it. Oh, that's a great idea. But uh, it's a good habit to be in. We'll provide all the verses on the screen, of course, but I always encourage you to bring your Bibles. All right, James 1, beginning with verse 19. Focus with me. James says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. The first two words are translated, understand this. It's like James is reaching out to grab us and saying, okay, don't miss this. I'm about to deal with something important here. So wake up, don't miss this. He says, you must all be. In other words, this is not just a, a good suggestion or an idea you might think about. No, this is essential. Hear what I'm about to say. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. 
I found it interesting. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I read those who are, and, and there are always some nuances in the original language. And one here is that there is no what English teachers would call conjunctive words. There's no and in, in the Greek, though it's translated with it here. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And, and the point there is that these are not disjointed, unconnected issues. These are all one connected attitude about relating to other people. And he says, you're to be quick to listen. We're to listen fully. If someone is, is sharing something with us, we're to be tuned in to what they're trying to convey to us. And then slow to speak. It doesn't mean we don't respond. It doesn't mean we become mute. It means we don't try to dominate the conversation. We don't try to, to win the debate. We don't, we don't try to, to get the upper hand, but we we participate, but in a way that is not competitive. We're slow to speak and then slow to get angry. And that's so important because here's what I found. See if you don't agree with this. Anytime I'm discussing something with someone and maybe it has a little bit of tension in it, the moment I get angry, any constructive conversation has been lost. The moment I let anger grab me, then, then I, I no longer make any progress with that person. And so James is saying, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and, and don't get upset. Why is that important? Verse 20, he tells us, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Now, before just moving on from that, that verse, I want, I want to stop. I, I want to ask each one of us an introspective question. If you're here in the worship center on the lower floor, if you're up in the balcony, if you're watching online, I, I want to ask every one of us, including myself, a question. Okay, here's the question. Is your heart's desire to produce the righteousness God desires? I mean, is it? Is that, is that really your passion? Is that your heart's desire? And I ask that question because it makes a big difference. Because if it's not, if that's not your heart's desire, then you're free to bash anyone you want, however you want, whenever you want, to their face, behind their back, or on social media. Just let it rip. If it's not your heart's desire, then you can go on any rant you will want to about any subject that you think you're the expert because you think you have all the answers and everybody, after all, they ought to listen to you. Or if, if your heart's desire is not the righteousness that God desires, you are free to say and do anything you want because no one should tell you what your rights are. Because if that doesn't matter, let it go. But if it does matter, if you understand that being a Christ follower means that we should hunger after being conformed to the image of Christ and union with Christ, 
then what James is telling us that anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. And here's why that's so important, even beyond you. Our behavior shapes the reputation of the gospel. Our behavior shapes the reputation of the gospel. And here's why. People who know that you claim to be a Christ follower, they think Jesus is like you. And when we don't think or talk or act like Jesus, they think Jesus is like us. And that's not a good thing. So what do we do? Because this is hard. Verse 21, James said, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives. I'm really a little shocked at how strong his language is here. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. What James is saying here is that to pursue righteousness, you have to purge sin. The Bible calls that repentance. If we're truly going to seek to be like Jesus, we have to repent of sin in our lives. He says, get rid of all the filth and evil in in your lives. And, And I think, okay, what, what does that include? Well, filth, I think, obviously, if any of us have any immorality in our life, if there's pornography or adultery or, or whatever it might be that's immoral, then obviously that needs to be purged and repented of. But then he also says, evil in your lives. How do you know what that is? He tells us, humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. What is he saying? It's the scripture. It's the scripture. The word of God tells us, and and I'm going to read this verse. We We have looked at this many times over the years, but I want you to hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time. These are the words of the apostle Paul to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. Words on the screen, look at them. All scripture, Paul said, is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us what to do what is right. That's what James is saying. We should humbly accept the word of God. So how how do we do that? Go back to James 1 and pick it up with verse 22. He says, but don't just listen to God's word. That's what we're all doing this morning. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, and then he gives us an illustration, a word picture. It is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, 
and forget what you look like. You see, if you hear a sermon on trials and troubles and how you should look at them differently and think of them differently and see God's purpose in them, but you don't act on that, or if you hear a sermon on temptation and things that you ought to do to put safeguards against them in your life and you don't listen or, or do any of that, if we hear but don't change, he says it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself and just walk away. But you don't change. I had a thought. <clears throat> you know, several weeks ago, we had Hawaiian Shirt Sunday. You remember that? And I wore this great-looking Hawaiian shirt that my wife bought. It, it was great fun, even if you're not a Hawaiian shirt uh, fan. It, it, we, just, we just had a good time with it. And you could tell it was Hawaiian Shirt Sunday. I think maybe we ought to have a no-mirror Sunday. Or, or maybe we should call it Mirror But No Change Sunday. And on that Sunday, all of us will get up and we'll look in the mirror and we'll see the changes that need to be made, but we won't make any of them, and we'll just come to church like that. And I think two things will happen. First of all, it'll be the scariest Sunday on record here at our church, and the greetings that are normally, hey, good morning, how are you, will turn to, oh, you need help. And the second thing that will happen is it will be the lowest attended Sunday in our church history. Now, that's a silly illustration. But my fear is that's what we do spiritually. We hear the word of God, but we don't do anything with it. What are we supposed to do? James says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. If there's one theme that summarizes the whole book of James, that's it. Don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. And he expands on that in verse 25. He says, but if you look carefully into the perfect law, that's the scripture, that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, God will bless you for doing it. He'll bless you. He'll change you. Here's, here's my, my big idea, my main theme for today. Real faith produces real change. Real faith produces real change. Real faith will change us. It will change our attitude. It will change our attitude. Our attitude will look like the fruit of the Spirit. And, and you know this, this passage, but let me read it to you just to remind all of us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in us, in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me ask you something. If, if I were to interview some of the Christ, no, no, no. 
How about if I were to interview those who are not Christ followers in your life who know you? And I were to read to them the fruit of the Spirit and ask them, uh, is, is that how you would describe the attitude of fill your name in there? Do you think their response would be more, yeah, that, that's pretty much them. I see it every day. Or maybe would their response be, <laughs> you're kidding, right? I don't think so. But you see, if you have real faith, it changes your attitude. It changes your attitude. Real faith changes our actions. It changes what we do. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul, this time Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. This is what he prayed for those early believers. He said, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. And I love this last verse. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Real faith changes our actions. And real faith changes our words. It changes our words. Go back to our main chapter, James 1, pick it up with verse 26. If you claim to be religious or if you claim to be spiritual, if you think of yourself as spiritual, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. And your religion, your spirituality is worthless. James will have a lot more to say about the tongue in chapter 3, but he's saying to us, if you have real faith, then you're not going to gossip. Then you're not going to be unduly critical of people behind their back. You're not going to say things that will harm people that are not necessary. You're, you're not going to speak words that are not intended to be helpful. You're, you're going to, to be changed in what you say it changes our words. And then in verse 27, he says, pure and genuine religion, pure and genuine faith is a better translation for me. In the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Can I say that I think Naming orphans and widows there is not meant to be a comprehensive list of those for whom we should care. I think there are two examples of a wide range of people that we encounter in life that need the care and love of Jesus. I think it would include the homeless. I'm so thankful for our ministry here to the, to the homeless. It, it includes the poor. I'm so thankful for Fresh Start and SOS. Uh, it includes the unborn. And we ought to be those who care for the most defenseless of all in our society. Uh, it includes people with special needs. It, it includes anybody who needs someone 
to care about them and love them and be an advocate for them. That's what James is getting at here. That's the kind of person that has real faith. Real faith produces real change. And he says, you refuse to let the world corrupt you. Listen, our culture is not getting better, it's getting worse. And we must be the kind of people that live for Christ in the midst of a corrupt generation. So let me ask you, have you changed your attitude about trials and troubles since that message two weeks ago? Have you changed the way you guard against and resist temptation since the message last week? If there's been no change after the Word of God in your life and my life, then all those hours I spent preparing to to deliver those messages and all that time I spent praying for you to receive the Word of God and to understand it and to apply it and practice it in your life, all of those hours were wasted. They were meaningless. They're nothing. And what are we doing here anyway? Some of you are are so kind after sermons, those of you that I didn't make mad in any particular sermon, some of you are so kind to send notes or texts or emails to encourage your pastor. And, And can I just tell you that's meaningful? Those are always helpful because probably pastors need more encouragement now than they ever have before. Try leading the church through a pandemic and all all that kind of stuff. But here's what I want. As much as I genuinely appreciate that, what I pray for more than encouragement is change in your life and mine. Change in our life that we become more like Jesus because we take the word of God seriously. That we hear James when he says in verse 22, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourself. So I want to ask us this morning, can we just make a new commitment to each other? I've been journeying with some of you for more than 30 years. I see Ed and Jodell down there. We've more than 30 years together and and, and many others. And I've I've loved every moment of of being the pastor. But I'm, I'm asking you today, can we just make a new commitment to each other? And the other pastors and the other teachers in this church join me in this. We commit to you. And I commit for however many years God gives me to remain as your pastor. We commit to you to faithfully, prayerfully deliver to you the word of God accurately and clearly and practically and prayerfully. 
And we would ask as we seek to live it out in response that you would do the same, that you wouldn't just hear the word of God, but you would take it to heart and put it into practice with the help of the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit that we might become individually and collectively more like Jesus. If you'll commit that as I commit to you, would you say amen? amen. I hope we mean that. Because the Word of God changes us. Real faith brings about real change. I want to read one more passage of Scripture and make one final point, and then I'm done. What matters most to God is not how much doctrine and theology you know. And, and I am all for sound doctrine and good theology. As a pastor, that's dear to my heart. But can I tell you, it is not the primary goal of the teaching of the Word of God to make you smarter. It is to make you more godly and to make me more godly. In fact, there is a danger in getting too focused on how much doctrine and theology we know as opposed to how much more we're becoming like Jesus. And that's not just my idea. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, beginning with the middle of verse 1. Listen closely. Paul said, But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. I want us to be a church that loves Jesus. I want us to be Christ followers who love Jesus and are committed to becoming more like him through the truth of God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we conclude this service with a time of commitment. And I pray that we would become more committed than ever before to not only knowing and not just hearing, but living the Word of God living with the fruit of the Spirit as the characteristics of our lives, living with the righteousness that God desires as informed by the truth of God's Word. Father, I pray today that as we extend this prayer time and invitation, if there's someone here that, that there is evil in their life that needs to be repented of and forsaken and given over to Christ for forgiveness and restoration. And I pray that they might even have the courage to come to one of these prayer partners and say, without naming any sin, I am repenting and giving my heart anew to Jesus Christ today. I pray that if there's anyone here who has never made that decision to follow Christ, that they would come and say, I'm ready to take the next step. If there are those with burdens on their hearts, I pray that they would come and pray with these godly prayer partners. 
If there are those who are sick and need God's healing mercy, I pray that they would come and allow me to anoint them and Cindy and I to pray over them for God's healing. We give you these next few moments. Prayer partners, would you make your way to the front? And as we do so, may this be the time that we do business with the Lord and we give him fully our hearts and lives. Would you stand in the spirit and attitude of prayer?